Hello and welcome to episode 25 of Destroy Before Listening, which is a conversation between myself, Pete Byrne and Tony Sylvester. This was a very interesting conversation for me, a great window into the history of London post-hardcore band Fabric. From the origins in 1992, recording the Body of Water album, never quite finding their place or sound, and ending with Lightbringer in 1995. After this band ended, he focused on his various positions within Southern Distribution, who distributed Discord, Touch and Go, Cranky, and Southern Lord Records, etc. His next band was the Dukes of Nothing, featuring Iron Monkey and Orange Goblin members. With this group, he toured and released the album War and Wine on his Eccentric Man imprint in 2002. Throughout the 2000s, Tony was involved in the formation of the Aurora Borealis label with former Fabric bandmate Andrew Hartwell. We completely forgot to talk about this though in the interview. He also curated and coordinated the ambitious Latitude series of releases for the Southern label until his leaving in 2010. In 2011, he ended up becoming vocalist for the Norwegian group Turbo Negro, recording and touring throughout the 2010s. He currently focuses his time on men's fashion and lifestyle writing and his own AWMS clothing brand. You can also follow on Instagram at Destroy Before Listening. Thanks. So, Tony Sylvester, yeah, I'm interested because I don't know your background in terms of geographically uh, yeah. hometown. I mean, I know London area, I guess, or South, yeah. but not specifically. Brought up in a, I was like, just strict suburbia, just brought up in like the suburbs of northwest London. So, like Brent, North Harrow, around there. Yeah. And I just always, always feeling like a, you're on the edge of something. Like, always, literally, I literally felt like I looked one way and there was the sort of the, the country. And then the other side was London. So, it was a side, and that was where everything was going to be exciting and happening. And, and there was me on the edge of it, not having, you know, an exciting life. <laughs> And yeah. wanting to kind of get involved with things, and, and uh, I had um, I got two older sisters, so six and eight years older than me. So one of them was uh, was art college, um, so classic kind of like goth and sort of indie kind of uh, and punk, and then the other one was a uh, was a skinhead. And so so there was that kind of mix in the household of kind of musics and growing up with that, and then stuff my parents played. My dad was like an old beatnik and an old um, he played in skiffle bands and. So he was this, he still had all his like trad jazz and folk records and you know just old 60s stuff. But it was really like my sisters and the kind of competing stereos in their rooms, which is the first kind of things. And then when I was probably like, I started buying my own records. I think the first thing I got into is this, which was mine, was like break dancing, oh. you know, classic and, and uh, electro. That was the kind of first, the first sort of record I think I bought was probably the street sounds like electro one comp. And, and that was like that was obviously huge. As it, 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 I mean, I assume all over the country, but certainly London, that was absolutely massive in like mid eighties. So then, yeah, the idea of a, I guess like a subculture is something that you're mm-hmm. aware of and you look for in terms of well, that, well, that and then I mean the kind of like, the end of the terrorist boy era. That was you know the casual era. That was absolutely those were like the two things. And there was a kind of a kind of amalgam of that, which was sort of American sportswear. And then with the moving up to like the terrace boy kind of look, and I think you know that was, that was the kind of first things you were looking at when I was ten, so like eighty three, looking at what other people were doing and 
what they were wearing and how they were doing it. And then, and there was still a big skinhead scene in in that area of London that time. So that was like a, a big a big thing as well, definitely. So the visuals of, of punk and hardcore was the initial punk was very much punks punks on postcard UK eighty two sort of thing. And I and I didn't there wasn't that much around where I was. That was definitely something you saw in London. But that, that was pretty pretty low on my on my radar at the time. Yeah, yeah. And then I think I think it was a pretty natural progression from sort of from kind of break dancing and, and, and that to uh, to skating and then skate yeah. culture. And so that and that's like seeing things in shop windows, seeing skateboards. Funnily enough, my parents read the Daily Mail and <laughs> it was in the Sunday supplement there was an article on skate fashion and skate music. And that was literally the first time that I'd, I'd sort of come up, come across that was the Daily Mail, and yeah. that would have been, and that was like JFA and like, well, you know, yeah, 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 like, and that was like obviously, and like not really knowing like what any of this was, and this kind of, and then and then going into London and being in Piccadilly and going to Tower Records and picking up Thrasher, just looking through Thrasher and just being completely just overwhelmed and confused by by everything, you know, there's yeah. music and people and graphics and brands and stuff are just like just dizzying and i think at that age you kind of you're going through you're going through stuff so quickly and trying to find the things that that sort of work with you and picking bits of stuff up and chucking them away and 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 really so i kind of like i think i went through i think i kind of settled by the time i was 14 and kind of settled on on hardcore as being the thing that really spoke to me and again it was like it was beginnings of uh, that, that brick core thing was was really happening and kind of getting into the press and even getting on TV and getting into the consciousness, and 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 that was so that was my way in. So I think probably the first band I ever saw was I think Echo and the Bunny Men in like 1987. That was our first proper gig I went to, and then but then by the end of the year, I'd I'd seen the Stupids, you yeah, know, yeah. like at the Clarendon. So it was like it was all really quick, but but I'd kind of sort of sort of found that, and so once well, then then it's like okay, well I'm done. This is me done. And I don't think, and punk rock still didn't mean that much to me. It was really hardcore, and so I so I guess it was the it was the skating kind of aspect of it. You haven't got the internet. You pick up things in a weird way, so you could, you kind of pick up the wrong records, or you don't something doesn't quite gel or hit with you. And I remember like, oh, if you like punk, you got to get the Sex Pistols. So like, you know, I went and got the yeah. rock and roll swindle, and yeah. it's an awful record. You know, so yeah. you're like, well, this is terrible. You know, you don't get. You don't, you know, you, you get the wrong thing. And it's kind of the same with Discharge. I was on a school trip to Belgium of all places and I went in a record shop and I bought Smith's Strange Ways, Here We Come. And and I wanted to, I, everyone said, oh, you've got to get a Discharge record. So I came out, I just had Grave New World. <laughs> so that was the record I bought, you know. So so it's just like you, you, you're trying to seek this out. And I didn't really, there was no peer group. I, did, I was finding all of this stuff out for myself. It was probably not until like the end of 87, end of 88, I started going, to sh- uh, beginning of 88, I started going to shows and sort of met other people. And even then with it being London, it was like a real, real mix of people. There was so much stuff going, there was so many different subcultures within punk and hardcore that it wasn't, it wasn't, you were going to, I was going to see like, Mega City Four and Snuff and all those kind of bands, and then you'd meet people who were into the same stuff as you there, but you weren't necessarily that into the kind of bands who were playing. But then also, all the American bands came. Through. Getting most things, I guess, through London at like the late eighties was fucking everyone, you know. Everyone. Every, every, everyone was coming over, and so I mean, the amount of stuff I didn't just, you know, I missed 
probably Miss Crimags by a few by a few months the first time. Miss Bad Brains and that I think it was bad was it Bad Brains and Circle Jerks? I think Bad Brains uh missed that first tour then. No, Circle Jerks and Gangrene I just missed as well. I remember that. I remember finding out about that like, you know, like a month yeah. or so after I got into stuff. So when would it be that you became aware of like Discord records and or Touch and Go or SST or labels like that? Then was that because that would be more It was sort of price buying records was really price based. It was that whole like pay yeah. pay no more than yeah. thing. So yeah. so it was like that was the money I had to spend on something was probably a, a five pounds. So it was just like, what yeah. are you going to get with your money? So I think so my, shit- minor threat album for three quid. I was, was mine. It was right, like two ninety nine. Exactly. So you're yeah. getting the brick, you're getting the brick core stuff. Cause that was the same, obviously like the manicures stuff and the earache stuff. That's all priced pretty cheap. And then, and then the stuff that Southern did, of course I didn't know anything about that, but it was also about distribution. Like what was in our price, you know, rather than what was in the cool independent, I don't know what an independent record shop was, you know, particularly, there wasn't really any around, so it was by what was in our price. So it was the stuff on Southern had good distribution. So it was like septic death, you know, weirdly, you know, minor threat, and then obviously the the black flag stuff and 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 things like that. And then once I started getting into more things, it was seven inches because they yeah. were the same price. They were the import price, so it was like instead of spending a five pound on an album, you were spending four pound on a seven inch. So it's because yeah, it was the same with Pete. It was like, that, that's that was like the standard international like the import price wasn't it three pound ninety nine for a seven inch so yeah you just kind of take a shot at like i don't know someone that looks yeah appealing or you've got the domestics yeah like you say like the touch like the southern stuff at the time yeah but it was definitely so as soon as i shifted out so so a lot of the kind of like a lot of the kind of more esoteric-y discordy uh touch and go stuff sort of came a lot later for me because yeah. once i once i kind of like minor threat and then uniform choice and then but the other thing was with with brick core and all that stuff being really the thing that was like on feel and like in sounds and in nme and blah 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 it still felt kind of mainstream so then when you found out this when i was listening to those american records it time was so different then if they all felt like old records even though they were probably yeah. only a year old or two years old you'd buy you know you get crippled you seven inches it was like 1985 and you think oh that's years ago you know I've got, I've, got a, I've got a story about that, right? I'm sure. bit, well, I was thinking back to, oh, fuck me. It was when I was first, I must have been about 10 or 11 or something. You know, I've been saving up like, you know, for two months or something, three three months, you know, save up, saving up my pocket money. And it was like, uh, I wanted a black flag record. So I went in the independent record shop. I said, can I have a black flag record? What have you got? The guy brought out this like wedge you know, about like 10, 15 records, Black Flag. I was looking through, I was like, what's the cheapest one with the coolest cover? And it was like six pack, it was £2.99. I remember getting it and then going back to like my parents in the car and stuff and looking at it and the date and that. And I was like, it was like when I was born sort of thing. And I was thinking, well, yeah. being fucking ripped off here. This is old as fuck. <laughs> and <laughs> it yeah. just seems like a funny thing now, isn't it? It's like yeah. even at the time, ten years before, was like fuck this. I've got the wrong record. Uh, ten, ten years before was that's 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 not even conceivable. You it's know? like oh, I would listen to my like parents' records yeah. or something, or like sixty yeah. shit. You know, it just didn't make any sense. And then yeah. you know, I mean, I mean, on that front, one of the first records I got was this guy worked in the library. With my mum worked in the library, and this lad worked. 
there. Yeah. And he was like, oh, you're into punk rock. Oh, my mum said, came home and said, oh, this lad's into punk rock. And then he, he lent me some records. I don't think I had much at that point. So I was probably still only like 13 or something, maybe 12, 13. And he gave me the blasting concept. He lent it to me. Oh, okay. And, yeah. I, and like, that was, do you know what I mean? Like, that was, yeah. that was a, re- that was a really important record. But yeah, yeah. I took it to school and, in, and, I, and I accidentally put it next to the radiator in the science lab and it melted. Yeah. And uh, and I had to give it back to him, and I said, "I'm really <laughs> sorry." The records went. I said, "I'll get you a new one." So I went into town. I went into a rough trade, and they didn't have the blasting concept. <laughs> so I bought him blasting concept two, which yeah. is <laughs> which is a terrible record. <laughs> so I gave that back to him to replace it with. It's not that it's terrible. It's just that like there is a world of difference between those two records, you know. Yeah, um, I don't know who was choosing <laughs> a lot of that stuff. I remember that you couldn't always be like guaranteed a bang on record with SST. I remember looking at no, it was absolutely like, not. looking at the logo, it was always like, oh it's gotta be this, gotta be this. You know, if I knew like Discord and Touch and Go, it was always like, oh, yeah, yeah. fucking fuck, fuck buying that, you know. Yeah. They, you know I, I, I totally agree. And I and I mean in those days, those I don't know what it was like up there, but like even the independent record shops, their hardcore section, in inverted commas, yeah. Was was yeah. always like homestead yeah. SST. Yep. Um yeah, you know, like uh, blast first stuff. Like, yeah, well, yeah. So, so it was always, it was always a bit, and that was the stuff that also was in, was mainly the stuff that was in NME and Melody Maker and stuff. So that's why it felt very cool and very, 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 and so to to to, to be tuned into a network which was completely, completely under the radar. And I didn't really find that until the Youth Today show, yeah, which would have been. 1989 uh, and that was when i first realized i was other straight edge kids in particular you know what i mean so this this is revelation and victory records and stuff this is but i mean this is even this is Before. like yeah i mean yeah revelation definitely because i had like i remember yeah buying the sick of it also so that would have been buying import seven inches but like you're buying records yourself and you're reading fanzines and you're you're sort of trying to put it together yourself but until you actually kind of have a community you know, until you kind of lock into like a group of other people who are into the same things as you. Yeah. It makes sense to you, but then suddenly you, you, ah, oh, the doors open. You, you, you find these other kids who are completely into it. And most of them were in the north. There wasn't many kids into straight edge in the south. There was like the long cold stare guys and then a few other people, but, me, but mainly it was like, it was meeting guys from up north. Durham, really, it's uh, It was, yeah, strange. Durham leaves Liverpool. Liverpool was 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 a big big lot, and yeah. then uh, and then I met like even like I met Doug DL at that first when pen pals of him I think at that point I met him at the first Youth Today show as well so nineteen eighty nine yeah that that show was the one for me that really cemented and and kind of made it like okay well there's this community here and then started oh. traveling up north to go and to go to shows finding out about UK bands you know that were around and I still got a lot of friendships still in touch with a lot of people from that time yeah. You know? When does the idea of your personal participation in this coin, do you think? Or when? Well, I, I, there wasn't really enough people to, to sort of do a band, really. I think obviously it engenders that you involvement, obviously engenders you take in some kind of role. Like you have to, it's expected of you that you do something, right? So you do a fan yeah. or you take pictures or you do a band or you whatever it is. So I think that like, there wasn't enough people really or spare people around to do a band with until kind of long cold stare broke up because Jamie and Barry, uh, so Barry was a, Barry Lynch was a, a singer and, and Jamie Tilly played guitar and long cold stare. And they were the first kind of 
post-hardcore kids I knew in the sense that they were like already kind of moved on to like the whole world of music and what everything else and and because they were like two or three years older than me they were already kind of like cynical ex-hardcore kids at like aged 19 20 you know and 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 so they started giving me records and 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 so fabric was born out of that it was really like me wanting to do something putting together the sort of two different people i knew to sort of try and make a band so originally it was meant to be me singing uh, barry lynch playing bass uh jamie tilly playing guitar and then chris turner um on drums and, and chris worked at slam city skates he was like a kind of mermaid birmingham he was from that whole scene and then yeah. so he'd moved he'd moved down to London, i think to go to university so i met him so i kind of put together this group of people i knew and it was a kind of a bit of an odd mix it was really like the sort of tape trading and the kind of record collections of me trying to keep jamie and barry interested in hardcore because of the new hardcore stuff that was coming out which was obviously a bit more progressive and a bit more interesting at that time and then their collection of like old music you know and they're like and they're the stuff they were listening to and then sort of slap bang in the middle of that was discord and cell side fidelity jones lungfish you know that was like the really like sort of nucleus of what we were trying to kind of build build something around but there was also a, a very kind of metal and almost like proto metal like kind of rock influence but really early on with jamie uh and i mean we were listening to lots of sabbath and free stuff like can and kraut rock stuff and yeah. everything and we were just trying to sort of make that work and then barry just didn't want to do it so i shifted onto bass which i'd never done but just really so that we could write and kind of work as the three of us work a band together yeah and then andy hartwell was a skater friend of chris's so he was in bedford there was a whole hardcore scene and kind of skate scene which i didn't really know any of those guys chris knew them so so andy was a singer in a band i think called ordinary eye which i think was a band with kev so he was like well yeah i'll, I'll sing i want to sing in a band so we said okay well but but i'm going away to dc actually for the summer i'm going away to to the states so it kind of gave us this two or three months to sort of put together some songs and to, and to write some songs for when he came back and he left us a tape of him singing ordinary eye and it was like i think this story is true i don't know i hope i remember this correctly but i yeah. used to listen to this tape it was just like this guy's voice is fucking insane it's so fucking good and but it turned out that it was a vinnie vincent's invasion tape of like with really like histrionic vocals on it and it wasn't andy at all but I don't know if, that, if that's something I've invented in the 30 years since or if that's an actual true story <laughs> at We're this point. Fucking, yeah, it's true, isn't it? It's true. You got it. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so he came back. So we wrote a kind of, we put together a sort of set and then he came back and and, and then with a four-piece went and recorded that and did a demo. And So this is very- how, how you managed to, to like just get on it so quickly because it seems like 92 93 you're just banging it out basically like it was weird being in london because i think we had when you read old rock biographies bands from like new york and la always say that like because you've got the music industry there there's always a certain like reflection i think this worked in sort of two ways we we, we were getting pressed really quickly but maybe bands from like outside of london weren't getting so because we would be the support band you know a, a bill that some music reviewers would be at and then the other thing is we got all the opportunities to 
to open for loads of bands who were playing, but I mean really bizarre bands because that we didn't really fit in anywhere. There was there wasn't a scene that was there was no real hardcore scene in London, in, in and then there was certainly no kind of what I guess post hardcore or like progressive hardcore scene like at all. So it was yeah. a complete mind fuck to people. So we would be playing, we play with Gas Huffer, you know, <laughs> or like, like like, and then the next week yeah. we play with Biohazard. And the next yeah. week we play with like first and more. It was just like it was just bizarre because it was those were the opportunity. That's what who was playing. That was the opportunities. Mm-hmm. That's what we were doing. Was I think in like maybe in in like Leeds or up north or the Durham. Whatever. You, you probably had bills with of, with much more simpatico bands because there was a big enough scene to like just to, to kind of support that. But we were really just trying to find our feet and sort of do. Something. I guess the nearest thing is like understand, really, isn't it? Well, yeah, so they came around about the same time, I mean, and they were incredibly supportive. So they were like our little brother band in one sense, and then a kind of big brother band in another sense, because they got together a few couple of few months ahead of us. So I think our first show actually was we playing with them uh, in in out in Colchester, I think. So this would have been like winter of '92, and we did a demo like then or around then. But they went off in such a completely different direction and they were much more successful not more successful in the real sense of work because of course they were they were more successful in the sense that they, they signed to a label and they that they were also more successful in trying to capture what they were were doing yeah. I, think, I think they had a much more cohesive thing uh, this might not be the nicest thing to say but i think it's because what they were doing was already kind of existed they were like this is what we want to sound like boof we sounded like that Boof. Like, of course, you got uh, like quicksand, like Fugazi or whatever. This is already like a. Whereas I feel with, with Fabric, and this, this is before Kev joined the band, we didn't know what we wanted to do. We were really trying stuff and it wasn't, it didn't gel. Like it yeah. wasn't, it wasn't good in to me. <laughs> well, to, 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 to ask, <laughs> well, you know. to ask about the erraticness, I suppose, is the. Mm. On the demo, you've got a, uh, a heresy cover. I didn't know this. Yeah, I'd forgotten that. Yeah. I was like, fucking, that's a bit odd. That was a huge band for like, I mean, I'd, I'd seen them 87, 88. Was there really one on the, was that true? I don't, I can't remember playing one. I remember probably jamming one out, but I can't remember. Genocide? Jesus Christ. It's, it's on the, I only know because I was looking on the, uh, the Discogs list, and then it's got like if you go through on the pictures, there's like a, a credit, and then it says that it's a heresy. Go <laughs> ahead. Well, there you go. I mean, yeah, I honestly didn't. I, I yeah, I, I can't remember that, but that that <laughs> would that would track. Um, there's evidence of it somewhere, I'm sure. But uh, I don't, yeah, this is the problem. I should have done some more research, but I did go on Spotify and listen to uh, Body of Water because that's the only thing I could actually find, and that's probably the first time I've actually listened to it. In, yeah, two decades at least. Yeah. I, I I think the last thing I listened to was um, the Stella Maris because I think there was a process of putting that together was so much later because that was after the band broke up. So that that listening to that and doing the mastering on that etc was was a later thing. So that's, so in my mind that's the kind of last thing I really knew and, and had in my mind. So then we were like we we were after that demo and then when we did the record did, did the seven inches recorded those we I, I definitely and I think other people in the band realized that it wasn't where I wanted it to be. But that's not because I knew where I wanted it to be. It was just that I didn't know. I knew I didn't want to 
I did want it to sound like this. Has to do with production. Has to do yeah. with. Has to do, and that's also to do with just like the the sort of different people involved. Like Jamie was very you know, mercurial by nature, and I, I, and always wanted to slightly not be doing what it was that was asked of him, or what was accepted, or what people would expect from him. And so it's just like he was always kind of he had this real love of of like morbid angel and like real like guitar based you know and confessor and, and 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 like really like progressive like guitar stuff and so he wanted to really kind of mesh that in and it was and and it sometimes it worked sometimes it didn't so i think there was so we were we talked about getting kev joined and then having kev join and kev was just died in the wall straight discord you know influence yeah. I mean, he not to say he didn't have lots of other influences. He did. He was into lots of other music, but like yeah. in terms of his playing and in terms of his presentation, in terms of what he wanted to do and what he wanted to bring, that helped everything lock in. First thing we did with him was appeal session, and then we did, and then we went in and did um, we did the the, the demos at Torag, and then we did the album. and I, And I think you know, it's, it's the writing that we did with him is is very clear that we now had some kind of idea of what we wanted to do so this is like the album body of water where this is, this like is body fully, of water. Fully, fully comes into yeah like a, a and five piece in yeah yeah exactly and i think that at that point it was like it, it was closer in in vision and sort of scope to how we wanted it i still don't think it's you know it was it was production and everything else was not great well <laughs> We took in to Pat Collier from the Vibrators produced that record. And this, this is Greenhouse Studios. This it? is Greenhouse Studios, which is now Fortress right. Studios. Um, right, okay. We recorded there. It was in. It's in Shoreditch. It's like on the well in Old Street on the roundabout. And in those days, that was like a absolute. It was just like a wasteland. There was nothing around there. And we would record on weekends, and we did it over three weekends. At five o'clock on a Friday afternoon all the shutters around there just came down and then nothing reopened till Monday morning. So you were just basically recording in this, literally, in, in, there was nothing. It was, it was just dead. And so we ate, we had to, the only thing around that was open was the, the shell, the petrol station. So we just ate pot noodles from the petrol station for like the entire recording of that. And, uh, and, and so it was quite ragged in every sense of, you know, we, we were feeling pretty ragged when we were doing it. And I think it comes out quite ragged. Yeah. So this is like uh, domestically it's whole car and then doghouse America. So I think with a, so yeah. So after the demo, Gary Ouija from Gary Walker from Ouija, Gary Ouija, as he will forever be known, yeah. came to us and said, um, because of the connection, because, because so you got rough trade records, slam city skates and Ouija records were all, one company yeah. and and chris was working for slam city so so i think gary had got hold of the demo that way and he was nervous about putting he said i really like this i really want to work with you but it's really different to everything i do because weeder at the time was quite a kind of noisy yeah almost like noisy indie kind of label so he was like why don't you do your own imprint will it which is an incredible opportunity very very big of him to do so he did that, but his second proviso was, I'm a bit unsure about it though, because there's some history with Tony specifically, which is that um, there was some talk of like some major scale shoplifting that had gone yeah, on. Yeah, I was just going to say, some, is the shop, shoplifting involved? <laughs> uh, which, which 
which you know i might have known something about and um i might have involved touring bands who were staying at my house at the time as well and okay. uh gary was working in slam at the time he was like covering someone's shift when this all went down and i think he got the blame for it so he was a bit reticent on to to work with me so i had to kind of go to him and clear the air a little bit on that front which was uh yeah which we did, and the beef was squashed. And you got you got your record out, you know. Had to be done, I suppose. Ah, fucking hell! And then Two um, <laughs> exactly, but he uh, no, it was incredibly good of him to do. But also at the time, I think I'm pretty sure that Walter from uh, Quicksand had given the demo to Dirk at Doghouse, and that's how that came about. So, so the kind of the Doghouse connection was really early. I think they were on it from the demo, which is really good. You get, yeah, it gets good distribution because that's what I picked up pretty easy up here when I was like 15, you know, it was uh, right. the CD, Body Water, I was like, yeah. Yes, which which had all the, which had the extra, all the seven inches on, didn't it? And they were yeah, everything else. Everything yeah, everything up to the point, yeah. I mean, yeah. that was the thing I was going to ask is like the, uh, there's a Japanese pressing of that as well, isn't there? There is, yeah. I was like, that's a bit odd. Well, not odd, but it was just like, fuck, how did any kind of, it's not the thing that many, I guess, bands of the time got a no. release. Uh, that day, that would have absolutely been Ouija because they had the sort of roster they had. They were oh, like, okay. So so whoever they, I can't remember who it was, but whoever their licensee was in Japan, they put it out. But the crazy thing was, it has this essay in it in Japanese, which is absolutely wild because it's because you can't. I don't know what it says. But every paragraph or so, it will be like blah 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 blah. Pink fairies, Hawkwind, blah 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 <laughs> blah. Something else, blah 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 blah. And it's just this wild litany of bands, you know, or, or, or and references yeah. points. And I'm like, and it's like, what the hell is this? What are they saying? And it's it's a long, it's like a long, long form essay on. on well, a that's band. pretty cool for uh, the, any collectors yeah. out there who want to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, translate. I don't know if I have it. Also, it was, <laughs> it was super cool because it had the Obi strip. And, of course, in the 90s, having an Obi strip was like, you know, the, that was a sign of quality, you know. <laughs> so, like, mid-90s, what, uh, when did you start, I guess, playing out more or touring or, like, there was sort of opportunity, we opportunities? I mean, we were, we we just, so who did we tour, who did we play with and tour with? We toured with, we toured with The Offspring on their, fir- <laughs> on their first, on their first UK yeah. shows, and then which we didn't really know about, we were, I knew that they were like, "Oh, do you want to do this tour?" We're like, "Oh yeah, they're on, they're on Nemesis." Yeah, okay. And this was yeah. not knowing that they, in the meantime, since I think the tour was booked, and when they played, they became one of the biggest you know, with that that yeah. that one song, that first single. So that was just that was a, a completely strange thing. So we do things like that. Like we always we always seem to be like touring around and playing, but it was always. Cities beginning with L. It was always Leicester, Liverpool, Leeds, like London. You know, it seemed always yeah. to be that that L cities, and then a few like trips up Glasgow, other places. I played Newcastle at least once, maybe twice. Maybe slightly on the verge of me being of age to be aware of that. Or yeah. That that's about another year on for me to become aware of like right, yeah. the whole underground like, well, do it yourself thing. You know. That was that was that was unwound, I think, and so that would have been at the was a couple of dance. I don't ever remember playing in the summer. It was always (laughs) freezing cold. 
All I remember was playing like October to sort of February. I never. Yes, yeah, so we how in on the kind of UK hardcore scene, yeah, uh, like Bob Bob Tilton or Baby Opsil or you know the. That was the big the big shift. It was pretty. It was pretty bleak. Obviously, we had understand like down here, and then, but because I think we were doing something that people didn't necessarily like. I think developmentally, like in different places of the country, it was at different points. You know, so you still had you know like Eve Crew was still really big somewhere, or like you know, and like Crust was still really big everywhere. But like people weren't necessarily into what we were doing. We did one all day at the one in twelve. Uh, and it was like the beginning of autumn, end of summer. And we got there in the morning on a Sunday to discover that they wanted us to headline, you yeah. know, and it was just like, oh, Jesus Christ. So we just did this whole day of like bands and every band was <laughs> using your gear. Yeah. And it was like, but dead wrong and Bob Tilton played. So it was like, okay. oh, finally, we got to see something that we felt was like in our, kind of the same as us, Kids who had been into, you know, youth crew and, 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 and hardcore and then had had moved on a bit and were listening to other stuff. And I mean, of the two, we probably, well, we played with both of them all the time from that point on. And I, and Bob Tilton were probably seen as like the most naturally close to us. That, uh, but, but in terms of camaraderie and in terms of like actual characters, Dead Wrong were much more like close to us. You know what I mean? Because that was a that was a fucking bunch of just in you just they you know. they they get a lot of kind of repping people. I mean, I, I, there's very much well, there's very little in terms of like recorded stuff or like you know a yeah. classic kind of an album or a seven inch or whatever. Yeah. But everyone just says they they were like the kind of yeah well, they were the fucking business at the time. Well, they just came on and they just had this attitude that no one else than the bill had which was just this like searing arrogance and it was just beautiful to behold like you know in in the best possible way really like performative arrogance you know yeah. and uh, especially like jamie the singer who was like long hair flares you know <laughs> no, nothing demonstrably punk or hardcore about his presence at all just just very antagonistic you know, in, in his own way. And I was just, I was just, yes, I was absolutely, yeah, that was it from that moment on. They were meant to record for, for whole car, for Ouija, um, yeah. for, for their last seven inch. And, uh, and they got the recording dates wrong. So studio was booked and they showed up a week too late. They never did it. What could it be? Huh? Yeah. It was written. Yeah. The songs were great. It was two songs, seven inch. <laughs> what a cool I I don't know. You see, you mentioned this, and then it all starts coming back. It was one mm-hmm. track was called Marlon Speaks about Marlon Brando, and the other track was called Caribou's Journey. And the seven-inch cover, which was already mocked up, was a big picture of Marlon Brando with a caribou in the corner. And you turned it over, <laughs> and it was a big picture of a caribou with Marlon Brando in the corner. And that was still to that was just that was the kind of beauty of why I loved them was like that stuff, just yeah. that kind of uh, just stupidity, you know. But the downside of that was they never showed up because they were such fuck ups, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, what years does Fabric exist until? Because I know Lightbringers, you know, ninety like what ninety six, ninety five, ninety six, ninety five. So we so we recorded that beginning in ninety five, and that was that was pretty grueling 
recording it didn't it wasn't i i like i mean that record's got got great moments but i think you can already hear how kind of it's pretty bitter but it's a very cynical record i think i think i think andy in particular had had, had really soured on everything <laughs> 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 but especially on and i i think the lyrics are pretty pretty are pretty bleak i think his worldview at the time was was, was pretty bleak and then it just wasn't really working, I don't think. And and I personally don't think bands should really stick around anyway. I'm not a big fan of, of that. I, I, I think so it you, things... you got your two, three-year window and then you just do your shit and, you know, bail. Exactly. Good stuff. That's, that's always the way to do it. But but at the time, of course, that's, you don't really see that because especially for me, the first band I've been in and that. So, so I think there was a sense of trying to hold it on, trying to keep it together. I think people were always trying to leave. I think we were always trying to replace people some point there was talk about replacing jamie with um with, with someone else or someone that played i remember the last show we played was with quicksand at the garage in london and quicksand were just it was like it was this kind of gulf i think between the audience who were there to see see quicksand and then what we were trying to communicate which just felt very large like it was very much a kind of like skate fashion you know quite like that thing had broken it had really gone over you know the kind of just yeah you know, mainstream yeah, yeah. main and that look had gone really mainstream and with it some of the cultures was really was becoming and of course we were we were trying to say we're something else we're yeah. something else and we and we had that kind of arrogance of youth if we were beyond that and we were past that blah 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 so it just didn't work and then i remember jamie just went to glastonbury and he was meant to do stuff with the band, and so we were just like, "Well, I guess it's done." So this would have, so this would have been June '95. So that was it. Was very much a damp squib of an ending. It was there was no real. It was just like a sort of a kind of shrug of a last show, and then and then that was it. A few years later, is uh, Vic puts out the demos, doesn't she? Like the, uh, the, the so she put so it wasn't yeah it was a rehearsal it was a sort of rehearsal demos to Stella Maris so so that was that was recorded at Tyrags which was you know Liam from Tyrags it's like a legendary kind of garage studio I mean that's a fav- my favorite thing we ever did I think that's the closest to how how we wanted it to be and that's the closest I think it's got the kind of the sort of chaos and the kind of the sort of the kind of violence of of what we were doing in it. And because that never really came out in any of the other records, I don't think it was. It was always too, or always very kind of subdued. I mean, I can remember that taking in the Sonic Blueprint for for taking in for Body of Water was smashing pumpkins gish. That's what I, we <laughs> took in, or me specifically, it to try and get that Butch Vig sound of like being yeah. kind of open, but like in that kind of way that it was. It was very kind of loud and and open and and kind of heavy, but but still quite clean, you know. And 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 we failed completely at trying to achieve that. <laughs> <laughs> but that was that was in my mind. That was like what I wanted body of water to sound like. So. Yeah, well, I remember like even Caius was a thing yeah. back then, wasn't it? Because I mean, Caius was a huge, huge band for us. We we I remember playing when we would be on tour. We would play that for people who hadn't heard it yet. That Blues of the Red Sun, and that was you know even playing it for the Dead Wrong guys, and like just everyone just being like, ah. I mean, that was a huge, yeah, so that was definitely where, I, by the time Lightbringer comes out, that's definitely where we were, where we were. We were definitely in that kind of. So this leads into like the next sort of chapter of the freebie, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, if you look at the cover of Lightbringer, 
it's it's entirely based off a King Crimson live album, uh, Earthbound, the typeface and the, and the thing. That was where definitely what we used to play 21st century schizo in there. And we were moving in that sort of direction, weirdly. It, it, just our own personal kind of listening habits and stuff. So, so yeah, I, I think Chris joined Terminal Cheesecake first. All right. Oh, yeah, and then Orange okay. Goblin, which was already a band already going. I remember him telling me, me up saying I joined a band and I said what are they called and he said Orange Goblin and I'm almost falling off my seat at just the ludic like the stupidest name I'd ever heard you know so he did that pretty quick and um and Andy joined uh Beacon which was oh yeah um right. which was uh Dan Carter I had uh, that seven inch on subjugation I had started working at seven in 95 so i just kind of stuck my head down and kind of stayed in record distribution and then and then from there kind of managed some bands and then tour managed bands and then put on stuff i just just kind of kept involved in in music really until the early 2010s just kind of more on the on the on the business side of things yeah well what brought you back to doing something again because this would be the the I went to see him. I remember this in probably like 98. Uh, I went to see, sorry, Iron Monkey. I went to see him was just like, like everyone else was like, oh, this is fucking ace. Again, it kind of had that same feeling I got from Dead Wrong, that like absolute uh, complete conviction in what you're doing to the point of arrogance, you know, of just like, if it was, which I always love in bands, runs through back to the kind of Stooges or the Who or something, you know, that kind of like, the sense of the of like we know exactly what it is and you're a, you know you're a fucking idiot if you don't get this <laughs> kind of thing and they had it in you know in spades you know not just johnny but every you know every yeah. member of that band it was just it was so it was completely compelling and i'd known johnny for years you know from from hardcore like when i've been stayed at his house in nottingham and and again, it felt like a lifetime, like, like I hadn't seen those people before, but in retrospect, it was only like three years, you know, two or three years, but it felt like a really, really long time in terms of like how stuff had moved on. Because Chris was the first one to join, because I guess on the last Iron Monkey tour, Johnny got ill and, and came home and they stayed playing and they called themselves the Dukes of Nothing. They stayed like as the instrumental band. So the kind of, the, 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 the real birth of it was that. And then when they came back off tour, they started writing new material. So this was Stu, Doug, and, and Dean. And then they decided, of course, having done Monkey, that they wanted to do something completely different, you know, sound-wise. So Chris got in, and then I honestly can't tell you how it happened. They, someone said, oh, why don't you come and try out or something like that? And so, and so I did. That was always very much a, everything was in place before I came on board in terms of what it was going to be, how it was going to sound what it was going to look like, what the, you know, it was very much like joining a, it was the kind of like the last thing going, last piece being put in place on something that was already decided. Yeah. So I don't feel like it, I can't, I can't, I'm not going to sit here and claim that that's really, you know, and much to do with me in terms of the, the direction or, or, or anything else. You know what I mean? It's very much Dean and Stu and Doug's child. How do you go from, I guess, a, a musical approach being, the, the bass and the voice transitioning? The voice for that was Paul Bearer, 
John Brennan, Dwid, yeah. Lemmy. That was yeah. it. And, and that was through what was our common ground? What was our touchstones? What did we like? So I didn't really... I knew, I think I, I knew Dean, but we, we, you know, didn't know him well, I don't think, at that point. Doug I'd known for years, and obviously Chris was a really good friend of mine. So, so those two were really, really the only two bands. I didn't, I'd never met Stu before. And I walked in the first day, and he's just like, he's just there, just standing there like this, like little, just this little tank of a guy. <laughs> and he's got a uh, Chromax, I think Christmas on Earth shirt on, and then, blast sticker and a Celtic frost sticker on his SG yeah, yeah. and it's just like all right okay yeah. I get I get this you know instantly it's like yeah, yeah. Hardcore. And, and yeah. probably blast was the thing which was the most like okay because yeah, that was yeah. something like beneath maybe the like what people were expecting that was like linked back exactly to like what, what you know to some kind of common ground I always see that band as like a hardcore band you know so you took the manic raid Manic ride, exactly. It ends in, in, into the pandemonium. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there we go. Yeah, nice, yeah, nice. Sorry. Yeah, I think it was pretty clear. We knew they knew what they wanted to do, and and we and I. So in terms of like from conception to kind of to, to recording or conception to end, I think that's probably the you know it was an easy deal. Did you already kind of have things in place with experience? within like southern the distribution and the labels and whatnot to therefore have i mean they i don't want to speak for them because this is probably something something for, for those guys to talk on rather than me but i mean their experience with with their setup that they've been in before was 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 not, not was not good uh, you yeah. know they, they were they were coming out of that with a very much a kind of negative view of like of people um wanting so so it was very much like let's do it ourselves and then you know, my my sort of skill set was that I'd, you know, already w- distributed records and worked on records and and done most aspects of that side of things. So I was able to kind of you know help out with that, which in retrospect was not also just as problematic as having someone else do it because it's not an easy thing to do and it's not the best yeah. idea to like put out your own records when you're in the band yourself as well. This is eccentric man. Eccentric man. The the, the album. Is, yeah, it, yeah, so that was on that. So that was I started that label to put out a a, a split seven inch of I think it was uh, so it was Orange Goblin and Alabama Thunder Pussy doing covers. So I can't remember. Orange Goblin did Leaf Hound. Can't tell you what the Alabama Thunder Pussy song was. <laughs> Look that up before, and then and then put out Dukes, and then and then do some other like kind of bands. Put out Sex Maniacs, which is you know Stephen and. Yeah. Um, uh, those Voorhees sort of guys, you know, who became sort of uh, fellow travellers like with us. I mean, we did a lot of shows together and they were, again, same thing, hardcore kids playing rock music, essentially. So it was a yeah. you know, very, very similar kind of thing. But unfortunately, that was also about the time when physical distribution of music went to shit. If you, that was that, that, that sort of slow grind of between probably 2000 and, you know, three to 2009, where suddenly just physical distribution just fell apart, you know. So, yeah, it wasn't a good time to be releasing. <laughs> no. Releasing the CDs in particular, you know. Yeah. I mean, was it Southern Lord who you had a release on first? 
Um, Where's that? No, no, the seven inch came in because they started doing a, a series of seven inches. So that, yeah, that, that's that, right. So that, 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 we we did that one on there, and um, that's right. I was like the first person to like distribute Southern Lord stuff outside of the states, and I kind of got them the deal with with Southern, and you know, kind of I'd been working with them again, old hardcore kids. So it's like when we met, it was like we instantly had this bit of a shared background to be able to sort of talk about and like bond over so yeah. we were so you know we'd, we'd been friends we, you know we, we were friends alongside working together on the on the label so and those songs in particular on the southern lord seven inch felt like the most kind of southern lord sort of releases at like half evil like the so it's like that's the most kind of frost sort of one that we song we ever really recorded i think yeah so. i noticed the like the cover art stuff as well as like Florian and he, I guess yeah. he's he's a we met him in uh, yeah I was just gonna ask is like how how because it's kind of like a, a more of a like well if, for people who aren't aware it's more of like the pusshead style well in the two thousands it was more like the tattoo sort of pusshead yeah definitely the pusshead style wasn't it yeah I mean what yeah. we were we were playing we were on tour with Spirit Caravan and. Um, in Europe and we were playing in a town in Germany and this just quite unassuming, quite clean cut, like quite, it's kind of quite slender guy who just walks up and says, oh, I'm a big fan and I do, you know, I do art and then pulls out a book and we were just like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> you know, like instantly. And cause he was already in like cheerleaders of the apocalypse and, so he already knew like lots of people we knew, you know, he was already doing stuff for like Converge and, 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 and some other people and, you know, so yeah. it was, but it was just, it was just a disparity between meeting this, this, this very kind of like unassuming guy and then this yeah. stuff that he was doing and it was just like, wow. So the funny thing is, so we got, so we commissioned him to do the art for War and Wine for the, for the, for the record. I think that was something he already had. And I think that was one of the things he showed us in that book on the first day was that was the cover for the half evil suit. And I said, well, I want that. You know, he does like toys and like posters and everything now. You know, it's, it's, just, it, it's kind of different style now. When I have seen more recent things, his, it's like a, the switch between do, doing, becoming, I guess, growing up through one thing and then maturing and becoming... I always like. I mean, I always liked the fact that he was clearly. It was. It was obviously, he was derived from, you know, from Pusshead, but he, I always felt he had his own sort of twist on it, you know. And there yeah. was, a, and there was always something a bit more like kind of graphic novelly or something about what he did, which was kind of taking Pusshead and then pushing it into that. So I feel that he's just moved, just shunted further down the line. So the kind of Pusshead things, you know, been jettisoned a bit, and it's still it's very kind of graphic novel sort of sci-fi-ish kind of now, but it's still definitely there. It, that, that, the busyness is there. The kind of detail is still there. Like it's, you know, it's obvious you're into tattooing and being tattooed and how, <laughs> how far does <laughs> that, <a> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. How far does that go back? Or what was the kind of, where did that kick off? I think I had a first tattoo when I was 16. Um, but it wasn't, but it was such a terrible experience. That I didn't, it wasn't, it was certainly not for a few years after that. And then just kind of, yeah, also something I wanted to do. And, and then you're in that culture. And then obviously the, they're such close bedfellows, the kind of, especially at the time, the kind of music, you know, what you're doing with underground music and then tattooing. So it, they sort of seem to link up 
it, it just in terms of like it was the same people involved and, and and you know and there was a certain amount of bartering and trading as well between like giving people music or giving people access to the music rather than getting access to the tattoo world very close in that regard but i mean it's been years since i've been tattooed that ties in pretty much directly because you have a dan higgs tattoo as well don't you and i, I do yeah yeah i got i'm very I got a tattoo from Dan just just very shortly before he retired, so I'm pretty pretty happy about that because I'd been trying to get one for probably the best part of a decade, and it just it was impossible. It was just literally impossible. There was just no yeah. way he didn't he didn't have a he didn't have a planned um, schedule of of how he worked and where he worked, and so if you if you were not somewhere in his in the same location as him at any one time, then it just wasn't happening. And then it was on a lungfish tour. The, if you, I don't know if you remember, they didn't. They came here in like ninety three, ninety four, and then they just didn't come back for like. That was yeah. the time I saw them, like two thousand, was two thousand three, or I think yeah. it was two thousand three or. Because they came yeah. over like twice, or maybe even three times, pretty close to each other. Yeah. I remember, yeah. So, so that, so it was on that first one. Where I was like, listen, I want to be, t-, you know. He was like, yeah, yeah, okay, I think we can figure it out. And so at that point, it was like, so I went over to Baltimore and did it. And funny enough. I went on tour with Sun. I was doing merch for Sun in the states, so it all, you know, it all nice. sort of worked worked out. But the funny thing is, I, d- I think for a lot of people, I didn't never really realised for a bit period of time that the, yeah, the Daniel Higgs who sang in Lungfish was the same guy as Dan Higgs who did the tattoos. I, I think okay, there was yeah. a, I think there was a bit of a a disconnect because they never, the world never really crossed. Lung- I mean, Lungfish was a huge, as is probably apparent from anyone who listens back to Fabric. Lungfish was a big, big, big influence, quite kind of pretty central to what Fabric was, you know, or, or what Fabric was trying to do. I, I think the the debt is is there. We were never copyists because it was just like, well, well I, I, we would never. I don't think we we didn't have the we didn't have the same you know tools in our. Yeah you know in our toolkit but but it was that's a big influence on what we did i remember because obviously dan was tattooed you know and, and at the time the beard and the tattoos was pretty in 93 94 was a pretty was a pretty outlandish look yeah it was it was it wasn't it wasn't i was gonna say have you, have you ever seen him without his beard on that t- tattoo documentary i can't remember yeah 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 from yeah. the because you see him when on the life it's right under his chin and everything and you see all his neck yeah. when he's got his beard off Going back and seeing like you know reptile house pictures and stuff when he's when he's kind of beardless as well yeah it's 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 pretty wild yeah that's a that's a good one that's because that's like eighty eight I think that one isn't it that oh, uh, that, it, doc, that documentary I think it's gonna be like eighty eight eighty nine because yeah. he was in San Francisco wasn't he yeah and he was working with Ed Hardy yeah I remember seeing Mitch, Mitchell's tattoos like when he was drumming and it was like there, I didn't there was no there was no concept of like what it was it was like kind of small compared to what was because the tattoos everyone was it was all very tribal black and thing at the time so these guys to stand up with these traditional american tattoos that were quite that were very primitive and quite you know odd just looked otherworldly and and like there was just there was no there was no filter to there wasn't to take it in and understand it it's very much like what the hell is this you know mm-hmm. so that was very they were you know they were very ahead of their time in being completely out of time you know (laughs) anachronistic completely anachronistic yeah like sort of 20 years too late and and however than 15 years too early kind of thing you know yeah 
uh, as are all the best things. Best bands, I was just going to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. But but you know, staying in, staying in touch with Dan and got tattooed by him, and then had that relationship with him because of Southern and because of the relationship between Southern and Discord, and so I was always trying to. This is another transition because the Latitudes mm. series, and when you're working at Southern, you you sort of curate this. Yeah, I mean, it was releases. it wasn't it was me it was me and Allison who ran Southern at the time. We were sort of curating this this like series of which was Latitudes, which was really about. Uh, I actually kind of came out of the fact that like every Tory band used to do appeal session. It was like it was taken as a given that when the agents were booking the tours that they left a the day for an American band to always do appeal session, and that stopped. And it, and it didn't stop because appeal was still very much around. But his listening habits change, and he's he wasn't interested particularly anymore, you know, in, yeah. in, in 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 for whatever reason. Kind of a bit of a fuck you, really, to Peel. Firstly, because yeah. it was just it was just like, well, why don't we try and do the same thing? We've got the studio. We have got Southern, of course, grew out of the fact that it was a recording studio, but there wasn't much connection anymore between Southern Studios, the actual recording studio, and the rest of the companies, the distribution and record company. So we were yeah. trying to sort of reestablish that that connection. Did it ever move? Or- so Adrian Sherwood, all of the all of the yeah, that's sound right. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, all that stuff came through. So yeah. it was like a smaller, tiny studio. Yeah, you imagine it's like a suburban. It's a suburban house, like the terrace house, and the live room was the front room, and then right. and then you walk through the, the kitchen, which was still a kitchen. And then in, into the the garden, which had been turned into the ante room, whatever smoking room, and then the recording studio was a shed. The actual control room was a shed, and and it had been the shed had been built around the desk. It was literally just that. And you think about all the stuff that has come out of that space. It's just incredible. I mean, I know like uh, rudimentary penai is the obvious one, and like Fugazi. Mm-hmm. Uh, sessions it's just like you know it just seems a kind of a small weird setup for something like that to come from and then then to become a, a distribution well you know a, a name big name yeah I, I i mean he was because so not to turn this into like a southern records of music podcast because that's a whole yeah. other thing and i'm not less nece- i'm not the authority to kind of to, necessary to talk on that like all great things that came out of necessity he was recording crass because they were friends of his the crass record got you know wasn't allowed to be put out small wonder whoever pressing plant refused to do it he said i'll put it out blah 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 all kind of run from there so it was really about the kind of trading records so he on a distribution level, he had crass records he wanted to get into the States and then the, the American distributor, which was like the rough trade over there in San Francisco, they had their records that they wanted to, you know, kind of get over here. And and so it was like a bit of a network of like, well, we'll release your record in Europe if you release our one here. And, you know, the, the stuff they ended up pressing for everyone, not just like obviously touch and go, Discord, then later on, Constellation, Southern Lord, Cranky. You know, there's all these other weird ones, like all the Rat Cage records, like the Agnostic Front first album was a Southern release, you know. Was it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and like all these kind of like mad, mad, mad things. And that's not just counting, obviously, all the kind of crass and associated stuff, you know, Amoebics and Flux and yeah. and, 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 and uh, Conflict and, 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 and all of that. 
I spent a lot of time at Southern and around kind of sort of satellited from Southern, like either doing PR for them independently or working for distributors who were like associated with them pretty much from like my work in life from like age 20 to sort of age 35 was kind of involved with, with Southern. So I was, you know, it, it runs pretty deep for me, uh, period. What does your, oh, not working for Southern anymore, uh, have you kind of interested in doing a band again? Um, I mean, if, no, it was more like, uh, I, it, there was, it was basically some politics. There was, you, you just, everything had to be streamlined and there wasn't the kind of incomes coming from physical distribution anymore. So, so the decisions were made to like shift things around. And so I kind of shifted a lot of the, the kind of, uh, third party distribution and, and label management over to another company called SRD. And then once that was kind of embedded, I was like, I've done, I'm, I want to leave now. I'd already kind of started do, doing things away from music. I'd already started like working in kind of in menswear and, and that stuff. I was already writing for like GQ style and writing for a few men's magazines. And so it was just kind of like, I was like, I want to just kind of yeah get out of this because it was like, there was, it was no fun you know, no. <laughs> anymore, <laughs> particularly. And then that coincided funnily enough with the opportunity to do, to do to sing for turbo which was a whole another kettle of fish yeah so also like leaving someone was just like well i'm going to be doing some touring so i should it's a good time to leave i so say what we're saying is you know who kind of barely any of this you know it's just i'm, yeah. I'm just asking because um, you don't know yeah i'm fucking in newcastle i don't know i know about like yeah. what kind of went on in a certain time period up here but yeah. i know next to nothing about the kind of london this is what's really interesting is like there wasn't a lot going on. There was like a little kind of group group of us built around Long Cold Stair, like a little kind of London crew of kind of hardcore kids. And then we all aged out of it in the, in the early in the early 20s in the sense of like we started the scope of what we were doing and what we were interested to grew. And at the same time, that probably is about the same time that an actual London quite big hardcore scene started happening, but that which was built around you know, like knuckle dust and, and that whole thing. And like the kind of New York sound. So that was coming out, but that was completely, that was like slightly younger and completely separate to, to what we were doing. Uh, I mean, even had fabric being a band, I guess at the time you wouldn't have fitted in, you wouldn't have necessarily fitted in with that scene at all. Would you? I mean, I mean, definitely not. No. I mean, you know, there was, there's been some, there were some great, great bands from that kind of scene came out a bit later on, but at the time, and that goes back to what we were saying earlier about it, that the sort of sub- subjectivity and objectivity of what's hardcore, what's good hardcore, what's bad hardcore. It's so much about the age you listen to and the enthusiasm you have for something. Oh yeah. And and so and so it's just like at that time, I had no enthusiasm and no no want to really listen to to that kind of stuff. I felt like I knew it all. I felt like I'd done it all, and I felt like it was out of my system and all that. But the funny thing is. As you get older and you start realizing what's important to you or what you actually like and what you kind of, you know, what it is, you, you can't, you, you know, I'm more excited about new hardcore bands at the moment than I have been for a long time. You know, I think there's yeah. loads of really good, you know, stuff going, loads of really exciting kind of stuff going on. And I think it's the sort of most, the kind of more, I think it's the most ambitious and most kind of uh, exciting period for for that kind of music than it has been for a really long time 
and and again, a lot of that to do, I realise, is me and my willingness to want to hear it. It's not necessarily about the quality of the music itself. It's like the imprint it put on you. I mean, fuck, it's ridiculous when you think about it. It's this, you can see why, I guess, subgenres and genres and things have like a real hold over people, and it all depends on when it, when and what the exposure to whatever it is. It, yeah, I guess, when you're like probably sixteen or seventeen or something, it really that's when it just locks in, doesn't it? Yeah, I lo- I think it does, but at the same time, it's like it's it's like that. There's something about like arresting your development and arresting your excitement at that point and like putting yeah. it under glass and yeah. saying like okay well this is this is it but, and that and that's the kind of thing that i sort of I, I sort of look but i look at people who are like maybe haven't moved on from from a period of time of what whatever it was whether it's hardcore or or goth or you know mod whatever it was but yeah. they, they they seem they're sort of they feel their personal is it peaked as like a teenager and so they're kind of everything they do is always going to be like that and they still you know still walking around with like Paul Weller hair and it's pretty sort of sad to see so it's it's almost like you have to you know you kind of use that as your basis whatever it is it's like you're not only musical and like cultural but also maybe your moral kind of like look on the world which you've which you've kind of gained from from that and then you move forward with that and I I'm always always so chuffed to find out what old hardcore kids are up to and what they're doing especially when it's like the the, the sort of the the venn diagram of people doing exciting and sort of cultural you know creative things yeah. and, and having been in hardcore is really is really high it's not it's it's not that thing of like well you know i just got a job of in, in insurance and, and and kind of left it all behind you, you get a lot of crossover with people doing interesting stuff I guess when you were growing up, when I was growing up, the types of people who were recording the bands, for mm. instance, you know, mm. it, it, it'd just be like some guy who's so out of touch doesn't doesn't really know what you're going for at all. Totally. Whereas now you can have your record done by some guy who knows exactly where you're coming yeah. from, knows perfectly how to represent things. Yeah. And then you can get someone who knows exactly how to master that record now yeah. because they're they're like they're only yeah. they're a peer five ten years above you but yeah as probably underground music and hardcore grew there became more opportunities for uh people to actually like earn a living or or, or make some money at, at, at doing something involved with it which there hadn't been before so so no, of no. course you know if you were you hadn't made if you were like a st- if you're an engineer or you were you know and that goes to someone doing artwork or someone knowing layouts and everything there were so many things that people could could kind of take off and and make an adult yeah. career out of with, with you know with doing that and 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 that's one of the ways exactly that i feel that it's like really interesting seeing what people you know how people have grown seeing movement whatever it is it's like the components that make the whole kind of thing that people don't maybe you take for granted more so when you're younger or you would do now but it's the crucial old things that interlock and yeah you, you know help you you had people who were who you knew who were, who knew what you were talking about and knew about the thing and then and then you had the general population so you didn't talk about it you didn't really you know someone said well, what's that shirt and you'd be like oh nothing you didn't try and explain that it was yeah. schism records and that it was like the guitarist from youth today and his mate <laughs> and his roommate and they put out some yeah. hardcore record. What were you going to do? You just went on oh, nothing and you just kind of moved on. 
or someone said, oh, what kind of band are you into? And you were just, or what kind of band are you in? And you'd be like, you just sort of say like, oh, I don't know, it sounds like Nirvana or whatever, just to like, just, just, just sort of shut them up. It was such a vast gulf between what was happening. And then, and then obviously that, that bridge has become, that, that gulf has become so much smaller, you know, but it's, but it's minuscule now. It's just like, there is, you can talk about these things in, in all aid with all ages and all company and everyone has a, everyone has a touch though everyone understands what you're talking about that's a yeah. big difference terrible negro is a big part as well isn't it like it's a, like i know the name and i know ah, okay. sort of association and i know there's some records and that that's it that's like i kind of know it's a kind of the style but it was never a band that i ever particularly yeah, you know, it just I mean, I mean, that. again, it's kind of it's similar to the Jukes, and that like it's kind of old hardcore kids finding sort of common ground. But um, I really, I I heard Turbo um, in the mid nineties when on Ask Cobra, and it came in to it came to me at a time when every record was wrapped up in brown paper with like a silk screen on the front, yeah. and and everything was very very earnest and. And then suddenly this band came out, which was ju- just what was it? fucking yeah. insane, like old Poison Idea and, you know, kind of West Coast sort of the hardcore, but from, from this kind of like, yeah, RKL, completely different world from what was going on now. And, and, and But also at the same time, with that same thing that I talked about, that kind of like sense of kind of swagger and arrogance of, of like that they knew what they were doing and that everyone else was an idiot for not, for not doing this, you know, and uh, and I loved them, but it was quite a kind of aberration to sort of the other things that I would liked or was into, you know, which were very serious. And and then I got to see them on Apocalypse Dudes, and then we and then when they reformed, we became friends. When they came over, they were living in London a lot because they're kind of they were really trying to like break the UK when they came back in like the early early two thousands, and so they were they were in London a lot. We were hanging out a lot. And then we, I mean, I ended up being their press officer and doing their press for them. So they, and then they broke up. Um, Hank left the band, the singer left. And after a couple of years, they were like, oh, we want to do a show again, maybe. And then I happened to be in Oslo with, of all people, Dwid. Um, I was in Oslo with Dwid, Andy Kappa from Dead Wrong, and Boyd Rice. (laughs) 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 Which is like the weirdest, which is the weirdest. Because we travelled over, because uh, Dwid, uh, Dwid was doing shows with, with with Boyd Rice, and so me and Andy travelled over to to Oslo to to hang out with Dwid. And I met up with, with Tom from Turbo, and he was like thinking of getting a band back. I know, who should we get to sing? And so we we were. It was more like the idea of like that there would be guest vocalists, be more of a like sort of celebration of the band, and it would be like Jolla Biafra or. Damien for fucked up or you know you know all these people kind of coming in and guesting and then and then somehow from that we got to him going why don't why are you why you sing even though it's like a huge a huge band but also if it hadn't been around for two or three years which in sort of pop cultural terms musical terms is a lifetime so I didn't know we didn't really know whether it was gonna people would even be interested so it was very much like starting a band from scratch in the sense of like it was like okay well let's rehearse okay well let's do one show okay well let's so it was the same building blocks okay well maybe let's go and record well maybe let's go and do this so the first year of it was very much like kind of starting again it just seemed to work for those personalities and i think that first album that i did with them was very much a song written with me in mind in terms of like 
It was down-tuned. It was all in D. It was pretty aggressive. It kind of leaned into our commonalities in terms of like old hardcore and sort of more aggressive kind of music, I think. So it was kind of like, it referenced a lot of Ass Cobra and the early Turbo stuff. Obviously, then we started touring. And so it became more, more like me in the middle of their repertoire. So obviously, my singing changed because it's like a stamina. If nothing else, I couldn't sing that kind of John Brennan, you know, Dwight yeah. kind of thing, like old Lemmy kind of thing I used to do. The, the, the stuff I heard with you, and I was like, fuck, it's quite surprising you can like, sing. <laughs> you can't not sing. It's not just someone <laughs> screaming over things, is it? Thank you. So so that kind yeah. of came out That kind of came out of, of having to do two-hour sets, like, you know, live and obviously working with 20 years of their material. So my voice sort of like softened a bit and then we we started tuning up again to E and then we got the keyboard player in we never when we re, when they reformed Paul Paul Pot who used to play keys he he didn't come back in so it was very much a guitar band again and very much a kind of like you know like a, a kind of two guitar kind of band and then we were started thinking about it and then we were like well we want keys back in so instead of getting the kind of the keys that we used to have with Paulie which was just very kind of like stooges kind of almost piano kind of like rhythmic thing it was like what we started thinking about actual keyboards like in an 80s kind of sense of like you know in a van halen and really the idea of it was you know try, trying to kind of incorporate those kind of sounds and so it's a rock and roll machine that second album we did together is much more an album geared towards the keyboard player coming in so it was almost like sexual harassment was like welcome tony into the fold and give him a, a you know an opening present which was these songs that sound like him and then the second record was very much like welcome Hawkorn, marry us into our band and here are some keyboard bass songs so it, it's kind of like i like that those records are so 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 different they're still incredibly turbo but it's like two two kind of sides of like the band across the, it's the kind of 25 years of turbo distilled really into sort of two records you know how is that as well going from playing small rooms to playing festivals and you know big well i mean much bigger sort of presence musically i mean it's it, it change it changes everything because it's like it's not necessarily even the the size of the, the crowd is one thing but the other thing is a, a sort of expectation level because in in every band that i've been in up until then you were presenting something that people didn't necessarily know which was frustrating because you don't really have an audience. You're, you're trying to put yourself in front of people and say, this is what we do. But then the other side of it is you're totally in control of it. Like you can, your mood, it can be like, if you're in a bad mood, if you're in a good mood, if you're, if you don't like the crowd, if you like the crowd, whatever it is, it's like, you're kind of in control. It's just like, well, you know, this, this is what we're doing. Whereas you, you get to a band like Turbo is much more about people have paid money to, to see something. And there's an expectation level. So on one hand, it's amazing to have to go out and play to an audience. And within that comes a there's a contract involved, which is you've got to deliver, you know, you've got to deliver what they want. You're not having an off night. It's it's gotta be good. So I'm more comfortable playing in rooms. I was never I never went to festivals. I was never festivals were never part of my growing up or never part of my thing. So suddenly being thrust into a world of festivals was really and I wouldn't go to them unless I was it's not my I don't, I don't understand it particularly. I don't get the culture of it. I don't really, I don't get what people get out of it. To, to me, it's like it, it, it's like everything works better in a in a room. 
it sounds better and it's a better experience and it's so i much preferred turbo club shows to stadium shows it's never it's never really yeah. my never really my bag but you know again though it's fun to learn the stagecraft and it's fun to to work and on how you translate what you do into that situation it's a half half past three in front of fifty thousand people you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. bring the rock energy when you just like oh fuck this yeah <laughs> so like learning that kind of aspect of it i mean it's i literally went from being a you know you you overnight you're you're a professional musician in the sense that someone's pay, paying you money yeah. to to play music so the whole, now whole, the whole thing is changes completely and um yeah and and that's and that and so everything that comes with it it's you know it's, it's good and bad so the end of this experience wise puts in kind of gives you further insight or wisdoms towards what you want or how you can put put forth an idea yeah I'm 50 next year. I don't. I don't know what. I don't know what that means in terms of what what I should be doing, how I should be doing it, or what. Since I know that I'm still, you know, I know that I'm still like to a certain extent. I'm an active participant in in music, in like listening to music, buying records, going to shows, being you know, getting excited about uh, music, also being excited about contemporary music and 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 what's going on, not just listening to the same old stuff that you listen to when you're a kid like I'm genuinely into interested in in still being active and I and I've got a group of friends who are as well so it's like that's really like have you heard this have you checked this out you know it's like there is a sense of like between me and my contemporaries that like you know there is there's still good things out there and still stuff to discover so I'm still very active in there but um I'd like to do something which is a bit more um which is probably a bit closer to what I used to like as a some point there's always been talk about doing a little project here and there nothing's come to pass as yet but i think i think it probably will (laughs) (laughs) as funny as it is i think the the persona of being a front man and then also like how i am off stage and how i am as a person they are they're they are very different and um and that's great i like to be able to do that but then i'm not it's not part of my sort of makeup to then behave like that character when i'm not performing as that character if that makes sense it's not like i'm like have any great need to sort of like act up or or, or be like that so i'm very happy to especially at the age i'm at to just you know be chill you know I mean? be uh, that's um, that's fine that's that's fine by me let yeah. the kids take control now exactly you know, you, you, you i mean i mean they over. always they always did anyway I'm, i feel like there's real innovators out there and i feel like there's real people who have made like a real big difference to to kind of culture movies forward and i and i mean i'm I don't feel like I've really had much to do with that vanguard element of it. I, I'm I'm really happy to have the involvement I've had and had the friendships I've had, the relationships I've had, and been involved with the musicians that I've been involved and in, do the things. But I don't, don't certainly don't feel like nowhere near the great pantheon of the of the greats, <laughs> or the innovators. You know what I mean? Just a guy who was in some bands, did some stuff. Exactly. 